Amen. Good morning, everyone. Happy Palm Sunday. It's great to see you here with us today. Uh, today, what I want to do is I want to wrap up the teaching series we've been working our way through, uh, just in, t- in anticipation for next week and Easter. We've been working our way through a series called 24 Hours. And so what we've been doing is we've been looking at the last 24 hours of Jesus' life and these uh, four scenes in particular. And so we, we began looking at the table and then we looked at the garden of Gethsemane. And then last week we talked about the courtyard scene. And today we're gonna experience the cross. We're gonna uh, walk through the cross and talk about that. And so um, in anticipation of that, uh, our media makes public or makes familiar the once unknown world of legal procedure. If you haven't noticed, we hear all about the grisliest murder trials, the sexual misconduct cases. Uh, They're they're paraded in front of us. We see them all the time in in news and in our newspapers and things like that. So over the last couple of months, it's been uh, this guy. Who is this? Larry Nasser. That's right. If you have been living under a rock for the last several weeks, uh, Larry Nasser, MSU doctor, worked primarily with uh, female gymnasts and um, molested sexually hundreds of women, some of them uh, younger than 13. And so we heard about his trial, we watched it, and then what we watched was uh, at his sentencing, um, over, like, I don't even know how many, it was hundreds of women made victim impact statements. And this was covered by the media. So we watched uh, victims and their abuser face off, face to face, as uh, these victims read these victim impact statements at his sentencing, and then he was sentenced for the rest of his life to prison. We're we're used to this. We we see these things. They're, They're sensationalized by the media and put right in front of us, and we watch them happen. We're used to seeing legal procedure and court cases and trials happen. What's interesting, as you go to the Gospels and you begin to read the account of Jesus' trial and execution, what stands out is that Jesus is accused of far less than anything our human courts would deem worthy of of some kind of major sentence. Not only that, but uh, what he did would be deemed less than worthy of being covered by our media probably as well. Over the course of less than 24 hours, Jesus endures multiple interrogations, some from the Jewish council and some from the Roman uh, government. And in the end of it all, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, sentences Jesus to the harshest sentence, the harshest verdict that was, uh, that was available to him under Roman law. Jesus is sentenced to be crucified. And the question is, for what? For what exactly? Jesus uh, was accused of blasphemy by the Jewish people, and he was accused of sedition by the Romans. Basically, what that means is Jesus' claim before the, the religious establishment, his claim to be the son of God was considered to be blasphemy. And between, uh, before the political establishment of the Romans, his claim to be a Messiah or a king was considered to be a threat to Caesar. And so that's what he's sentenced to death at, at the worst possible ex- execution that was available at that time. That's what he did to be sentenced. And so here's what I want you to see as we jump in this morning. Go ahead to that next uh, sentence. These aren't crimes, they're claims. They're not crimes necessarily. Jesus never molested anyone or committed murder or killed anyone or led some kind of revolt violently. They're claims. The crimes that Jesus was put to death for were the claims that he made about himself. Jesus never called on his followers to trust in his ideas. Have you ever noticed that? 
even though his ideas were awesome and they've stood the test of time, he never called on his followers to trust in his teachings, even though his teachings were revolutionary and we would still hold them up today as some of the greatest moral teaching that's, that's ever been taught. But, but the essence of the gospel, if you really boil it down and understand it, Jesus invited his followers to trust in him, in him himself. And we understand that salvation comes not through, uh, you know, putting our trust in, in some ideas or in some moral effort of our own or in some merit that we have, but we experience salvation. The essence of the gospel is by putting our trust in Jesus himself, because his claims were about himself. And we find freedom and salvation in a relationship with Jesus himself. And so you would think because this was his central message and his claims about himself were so central and he was literally sentenced to death because of the claims he made about himself, you would think then that the gospel writers would want to present Jesus as the ultimate victim, right? I mean, you think about our world, think about legal procedure today. Victims are held up in high esteem. We identify with victims. We stand in solidarity with victims, Think about our world. I mean, hashtag me too. Victim impact statements at Larry Nassar's uh, trial. I mean, we identify with victims. You would think with Jesus being so unfairly put on trial and condemned and executed in such a harsh way, you would think the gospel writers would wanna come along and point to him and say, there is the ultimate victim. That's what he is. And you would think there would be some, some attempt to sort of rise up in solidarity with Jesus because he's the ultimate victim. And that's why it's so strange. As you read the gospel accounts, the gospel writers make no effort to project Jesus as a victim. They make no effort to do that. Instead, what they do when you get, you go, the gospels kind of move along at this fast clip. And then when you get to the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, everything slows way down and they go through every horrible, ugly detail of his death, but they don't present him as a victim. They actually present him as a victor. We've been looking at the gospel of Matthew. And so we're gonna continue that today. So as we look at the story of the cross, I want us just to ask a question. You can jot this down in your notes if you want. Here's the question. What did the gospel writers want to emphasize in the story of Jesus' death? By the way, when you're studying the Bible, this is a great question to ask. When you're, when you're reading through the gospels and you come to an account like this of Jesus' uh, trial and execution, a great question to ask is what are, they, what are the gospel writers emphasizing? Because they all include and emphasize certain details that they could have left out. So the question is why do they want to emphasize that? So as we look at Matthew's account today, I just wanna ask the question, why do the gospel writers want to emphasize, uh, what are they emphasizing in the story of Jesus' death? So this is Matthew 27, verse 27 says this, some of the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their headquarters. This is directly after he's been sentenced uh, to death. They took him into their headquarters and they called out the entire regiment. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. They wove thorn branches into a crown and they put it on his head. And they placed a reed stick in his right hand as a scepter. Then they knelt before him in mockery and taunted, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and grabbed the stick and they struck him on the head with it. And Matthew is going into great detail here, giving you the exact details of how the soldiers mock and abuse Jesus in this moment. 
And here's what I want you to see. If you were uh, some of Matthew's original hearers, the people who he was writing to initially, you would have immediately recognized this scene as something in the ancient world, uh, in the ancient Roman world, known as a Roman triumph. A Roman triumph actually began with Roman generals as they were coming back to the city of Rome after a great military battle. And the way they would come back into the city of Rome and they would present the spoils of war to the Romans uh, became this big ceremonial uh, parade, basically. It was a procession of them coming into the city. And then later, after the generals had done this for a while, the emperor himself began doing this. So by the time of Matthew's writing of his gospel, a Roman triumph was something the entire Roman world was familiar with. The emperor did it on a regular basis. So when the emperor would come back into the city for a Roman triumph to, pre to present the spoils of war of his latest conquest, here are, here are some of the details of how it went. Uh, first, the emperor would gather with the Praetorian Guard, that's the Roman soldiers that were in the Praetorium outside the city of Rome. That's where they were gathered first. By the way, some translations say that uh, the governor's soldiers took Jesus into their praetorium. Instead of the headquarters, they actually use, it uses the word praetorium. And so they gathered in the praetorium. And the first thing that the Roman soldiers would do is they would go to the statue of Jupiter that was there in the temple and they would take the purple robe off the statue of Jupiter and they would wrap it around the emperor. And then they would take a, a scepter and they would put it in his hand, symbolizing his authority. And then they would take a laurel wreath. It was usually made out of gold from the temple and they would put it on his head. These are all symbols of his kingship and authority. And then the procession into the city of Rome would begin with the Roman soldiers saying, hail Caesar. And they would scream it, hail Caesar. And then all the people would gather and they would all, and they would watch this parade coming through and everyone would begin to yell, hail Caesar. And that's how they would proclaim him as Lord and victor. So as Matthew is telling this story, of Jesus being abused and in a mocking sense, in a mocking way, he's being proclaimed and acknowledged as king. Matthew's pointing out, do you see, even though they're, it's in a mocking way, do you see that the Roman soldiers are acknowledging him as king? Not Caesar, but Jesus. Even the soldiers in their own way are acknowledging Jesus as victor. Matthew doesn't tell the story as a defeat, this is not Jesus being defeated. Matthew tells the story as a victory. That's what he's doing. He's purposely trying to help you see this is not a death march. It's a victory march that Jesus is about to begin. From there, they forced Jesus to carry his cross to his place of execution, Golgotha in Aramaic and Calvary in Latin. Verse 35, it says, after they had nailed him to the cross, the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. Then they sat around and kept guard as he hung there. A sign was fastened above Jesus' head announcing the charge against him. It read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now for Romans, uh, the cross, crucifixion was the cruelest form of capital punishment. And actually it was, it was reserved only for the worst crimes that were committed in the colonies. And, and so actually, if you were a Roman citizen, you would not be crucified, you would have been beheaded if you were gonna be executed. They only sentenced people to die in the colonies who had committed the worst crimes. And so this is like the most humiliating way to die in the Roman world, Jesus is being crucified. But not just for the Romans, Deuteronomy 21 in, the, in your Old Testament uh, reads um, that cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree to die. That's what it says. 
And so for the Jewish people, they would have understood the worst way to die, the most humiliating way to die. Cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And so Jesus being hung on a tree, crucified, was, this was like, this was humiliating. This was the worst way to die. You would think if there was a moment where the gospel writers would want to emphasize the fact that Jesus is a victim, Jesus is being crucified unfairly. He's being given the worst death in the entire world that anyone can think of. And for what? Look at what a victim he is. Look at how he's been victimized. You would think that's the way they would want to tell it. But again, they don't do that. They, they pitch it as a victory, not as a defeat. Verse 45 of Matthew 27, at noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Really? That's what Matthew wants us to know about this moment. When Jesus is literally hanging there dying, the most humiliating death you can possibly die, what he wants us to know in that moment is that Jesus himself feels abandoned by God. It's almost like God, the Father himself, can't even look at Jesus. Like, oh my gosh, look at this guy, right? That's really what Matthew wants us to know. I, I, why would you wanna include this if you were Matthew? Well, if we could dive into that for just a second, what Jesus is doing right here is he's actually quoting the first part of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 in your Bible begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me or why have you abandoned me? Uh, this is one of the most misunderstood passages in all of scripture. Uh, people, people misunderstand this all the time. The key biblical insight into understanding what's happening right here in this passage of scripture is in understanding a historical fact about how the Jewish people at this time cited scripture. Okay, so they didn't have numbers and verses and stuff like that to cite scripture. Uh, for the Jewish people at this time, it was very rare that you would actually have a, a written copy of, this, of the actual scriptures. And so you memorized it. From the time you were very little, Jewish boys and Jew, Jewish little girls were taught scripture and they memorized it. They committed it to memory. And so the way Jewish people would cite a passage of scripture is you would mention the first line of it and then you would expect your hearers, because they had it memorized, you would expect them to fill in the blanks. You would you expect them to immediately go, oh, he's, that's what he's, and in your head, you would fill it in. It's called remez. That's the, what it's actually called. You, a remez is you cite the first line of a passage of scripture and then you expect your hearers to fill in and, and think of the rest of the passage. Jesus does this in multiple places in the gospels. So what's happening here is Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's gasping for air. Because on the cross, you literally, your diaphragm would be expanded and you would have to pull yourself up just to take a breath. So he's dying, he's gasping for air. And with one gasp of air, he, he does a remez. He says the first line of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's expecting his hearers right there around the cross to fill in in their heads, Psalm 22. Uh, go ahead on the screen. Here's some of the other statements that are made in Psalm 22. You can go read it on your own if you want. It says, I am scorned by everyone. All who see me mock me. All my bones are out of joint. They divide my clothing among them and cast lots or throw dice for my garment. So in this moment, is Jesus saying, I have been abandoned by God? That's what I want you all to know is right now God is abandoning me. No, that's not what he's doing. 
what Jesus is doing, he's saying this remez, this first line of Psalm 22, and he's saying to everyone who's gathered around the cross there, right now he's saying, Psalm 22 is being fulfilled in your hearing. You are witnessing Psalm 22 being fulfilled. What's interesting is Psalm 22 is not a psalm of abandonment. It begins that way, but then it shifts toward confidence in God's deliverance. This is uh, the actual, this is the, uh, toward the very end of Psalm 22, verse 24 says, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Jesus is declaring to everyone who's standing there around the cross, he's saying, right now, you are witnessing Psalm 22. It seems like I'm defeated. It seems like I'm abandoned. It seems like God has turned his face away from me, but you are actually watching a victory right now. You are actually watching God displaying his greatest victory. This is not, Matthew doesn't tell this as as a defeat. He doesn't paint Jesus as a victim hanging there on the cross. He paints him as the ultimate victor. That's what he's doing. Now, lastly, as you look at the the crucifixion account, you would think that Matthew would wanna show Jesus having bitterness at his enemies, right? I mean, here he is hanging on the cross. This is like the, this is the perfect moment for a victim impact statement, right? This is what you did to me and this is how it made me feel. And this, you'd think this would be the moment. You kind of want Jesus in this moment to let his enemies have it or at least snub them before he dies. You know what I mean? You want something like that. There, here's Matthew's chance to present Jesus as the ultimate victim. Everyone's watching. This is what you did to me. This is how it affected me. And, and just to just go off on his enemies. But again, he doesn't do that. He doesn't paint Jesus in that way. Look at some of these verses. The other gospel writers don't any either. Luke 23, 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. He says this as the Roman soldiers are nailing him to the cross. This is the statement he makes about those who are nailing him to the cross. Forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. John 19, verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, which is another way to reference John, he said to her, dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, here is your mother. And from then on, this disciple took her into his home. Hanging there on the cross, he's concerned for his mother as she's losing her son. And he's concerned for his closest disciple. He's wondering, what are they gonna do? when I'm gone. Luke 23, verse 43, and Jesus replied, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus utters these words to the thief that's dying next to him on the cross and dying for good reason. He's committed the crimes. He's guilty. And up until just a few moments before that, he was mocking Jesus with the rest of them. But then he says, would you remember, he recognizes who Jesus is and his dying breast. Would you you be with me? Uh, Remember me, he says, when you come into your glory. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. These are not the words of a scorned victim. It's not how the gospel writers portray Jesus in his final moments. They portray him instead as the ultimate victor. How do you know that you have risen above 
your wounds? How do you know that you've risen above those who have wounded you? How do you know you're no longer a victim for what's happened to you in your life? It's when you can extend grace to both the oppressed and the oppressor. Jesus, in alternating final breaths, you know, pronounces compassion for the mother who is losing her son. And in the next breath, he pronounces forgiveness for the men who are taking her from him. And then he welcomes a thief who's done nothing to, to deserve forgiveness, welcomes them into his kingdom. The way you know you've risen above and you've become victorious over every victim moment of your life is when you're able to extend grace, to extend forgiveness to both the oppressor and the oppressed in your life. The gospel writers here, what they're doing is they're winking a little bit in the way they tell the story of Jesus' crucifixion. They go into great detail and they wink and they, they're trying to show you this may look like a story of defeat, but it's a story about a victory, the greatest victory that's ever been won. And, and here's the truth of the gospel. If you've put your trust and your hope in Jesus, it's not just Jesus' victory. Like, don't you wish you could be like him? It's our victory it's our victory too. The truth of the gospel is none of us are victims. None of us get, have to stay victims. We're victors. We're people who have won a great victory, not of our own merit, not of our own strength, but because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And the gospel writers go into great detail to show you this is the moment of God's greatest victory. You just have to wait a little longer. Three days, in fact and you'll see it for what it is. Are there any moments in your life that have looked like a defeat? That have looked like your, your greatest victim moments? Maybe you're still stuck in victim mentality because look at what happened to me and look how unfair it is. Maybe in Christ, what God wants to do is turn that into your greatest victory. You just have to give it a little more time. So the question is, as we maybe take this crucifixion account this morning and we turn it toward ourselves a little bit and maybe just ask the question, where are you in this story? Where are you in this story? As you look at the story of Jesus' crucifixion again, maybe afresh, maybe we, you haven't considered it for a while, as we sit here beginning of Holy Week, where are you in this story? Maybe you see yourself in, uh, in the, the oppressed. Maybe you see yourself in the mother who's losing her son. Maybe you have a child that's walking away and you can't seem to do anything. You can't seem to fix the situation. They're making decisions. They're pursuing a lifestyle that you can't reel back in. And it feels like your greatest defeat, but it feels that way just because you haven't stuck around long enough yet. Maybe you identify with the oppressors, the Roman soldiers, those who nailed Jesus to the cross. Maybe you identify with them and you say, you know, there's things I've done in my life. There's, there's, uh, I, I just feel incredibly ashamed of. I regret now th the way I treated certain people, the way things I've done to people in my past. I wish I could go backward. I wish I could do it differently. I wish I could make it right, but I can't. And it feels like a great defeat. But it's just because you haven't given the story enough time yet. Because in Jesus, none of us are victims. We're victors. Maybe you see yourself in that dying thief, the one hanging next to Jesus. You feel so much shame for what you've done. There, there's, there's things in your life you just feel like, man, I can't get free of this. It still follows me around. And it feels like a defeat. It feels like tomorrow's gonna be just like today. There is no moving on from this. But that's just because you haven't 
brought it to the cross and given it enough time. Because in Jesus, what he does for us, this amazing thing he does for us is he takes our greatest victim moments. He takes our greatest defeats. What, what we would kind of say, I'm gonna hide that. I'm gonna hold it back. I'm gonna cover it up. I don't want anyone to see that. And Jesus says, those are the places in your life where I'm going to bring my greatest victories. Those are the places in your life where I'm actually gonna get the most glory. The cross was Jesus' ultimate victory march. It was a, it, it was a triumph. It wasn't a defeat. And the gospel writers want us to see that. For me, as I think about my life, where, where for me is this, when I think about the cross, um, reality that's happening in my life is uh, over the last year, uh, our son Aaron has begun going to a new school. He's a sixth grader. So entering middle school, he uh, has gone to North Rockford Middle School. And so for this past year, he's been the new kid in school. Now, as a parent, you worry about your kid when they're a new kid in school. But when your child has autism and they're the new kid in school, you worry about them even more. You think about what kids are gonna say to him, what what kids are gonna do to him. And so one of the new experiences uh, that we have had as a family that Aaron has had over this last year as he's been going um, to school is he rides the bus home from school every day. And so at 3 p.m. every day, I don't take any meetings here at the church. At 3 p.m., I have to literally be at my house and the short yellow school bus pulls up to my driveway and I have to be out there at the end of the driveway. And it's the, the school bus that, that brings all the special needs kids home. And so uh, I have to actually physically be there to get Aaron off the bus. And so I've been, as we kind of got closer in the summer to that moment, I was nervous about it for him. And so something uh, really beautiful and amazing has been happened. There is a kid on Aaron's bus, and I'm not gonna use his real name. His name, I'll just call him Joe, Okay. Uh, So there's this kid, Joe, on Aaron's bus, and he has special needs, and he rides the bus uh, with Aaron, and somehow has just become his buddy, and he just started looking out for him. And so literally, since like the first week of school, everything, the same thing happens. I go to the end of my driveway at 3 p.m., the short yellow school bus comes and stops in front of my driveway, and the first, the door's open, and the first kid off the bus is not Aaron, it's his buddy, Joe. And Joe carries Aaron's backpack for him. Every day, literally, I don't, I don't know why, I don't know how this started exactly, but the door's open and here comes Joe. He comes down the stairs, this big smile on his face and he says, hi, Aaron's dad. And he hands me Aaron's backpack and then he gives me a high five and he turns around and he goes, Aaron, because Aaron comes off the bus after him. Aaron, have a great day. And like high fives Aaron. And then he gets back on the bus. This kid is awesome. You pray, but when you're a parent like me, you pray for a kid like Joe you know, for your kid. I mean, it's, this has been amazing. It's been such an answer of prayer, such, such a gift. But, but it's, it does something else inside of me too. Um, what, multiple times when this yellow school bus pulls up to my uh, driveway and I'm standing there at 3 p.m., oftentimes I, I stand there and I'm suddenly the seventh grade version of myself. Uh, part of my backstory is I was a new kid at school And in seventh grade, I remember being the new kid in school, I wanted so badly to fit in with this group of boys. They were the cool kids. And so what we would do is uh, every every morning, the short yellow school bus would pull up to the curb at the school I went to. And so this group of seventh grade boys, I guess this was funny or it was cool or whatever, we would gather around and as these special needs kids got off the bus, we would ridicule them and we would laugh at them and we would mock them as they went into school. I I literally have memories of standing there and using words like retard 
and, and those kind of words coming out of my mouth. Those are some of the deepest memories of shame and regret that I have, even as an adult today. And especially as a parent of a special needs child. And, and for me, there have been days that bus pulls up and the door opens and Joe comes out of the, the bus holding Aaron's backpack and hands it to me. And I think to myself, God, you truly, you truly have mercy on the oppressed and on the oppressor. He's that good. The cross is that good. We are not victims, any of us, because of what's been done to us, because of things we've done and we've participated in. We are not victims. You are not a victim because of what's happened to you, because of the cross, and because as we stand in front of the cross, we have been reconciled and redeemed and our sins have been paid for by the only one who could pay for our sins. We are not victims. We are the ultimate victors for nothing that we've deserved on our own. And therein lies the great mystery of the cross. Therein lies the, the truth and the power of what it is. He has mercy on the oppressed and the oppressor. He'll do it in your story too. You just have to give him enough time. For Jesus, it was three days. For you, it might be three years. I don't know, but none of us are victims. Can you go back to that, that picture again? Larry Nasser is going away for the rest of his life. And, and if you follow the trial and some of the, the information on it, that's what should happen. But here's the power of the cross. Here's the truth of it. Even for Larry Nasser, the story isn't over yet. There's grace and there's mercy and there's forgiveness, even for Larry, Larry Nasser, if he wants it if he chooses it. Even though something inside of us, when we hear that and we think that, it just something inside of us just goes, nah, it can't be. But that's the power of the cross, my friends. That he has mercy on both the oppressed and the oppressor. There's no one who's outside the limits of his grace. No one who's outside the, the limits of his mercy. See, there, there's this lie that, that I think we believe. We grow up believing it. In our world, we look around and we're taught to believe it. And the lie is, I'm, I'm a victim. That's my identity. That's what I am. I, I, I'm a victim. This has been done to me. That's been done to me. Or I've participated and I've victimized others, whatever it is. And the truth of the matter is, if you're not dead yet, he's not done yet with you. If you ain't dead yet, if you're still breathing, your story is not over. And there's still a chance for you. Because of the cross, suffering has been transformed. Go ahead in that last statement. This is like what I wanted you to walk away with this morning. Because of the cross, suffering has been transformed and it's been transformed into an invitation from God. So I don't know what it is in your life. If it's loneliness, if that's what you're suffering right now. Loneliness is an, in, because of the cross, loneliness is an invitation to come to God and to connect with him and to connect with others in the church. But, but you have to not keep seeing yourself as a victim and saying, well, I deserve, and going and looking on a screen or hooking up with somebody in a one night stand or taking a drink to deal with your loneliness. You have to stop doing that. That's victim behavior, okay? You're not a victim. Loneliness is an invitation to come to God. 
if it's shame, if it's regret, if you think, look at your life and shame and regret, because of the cross, those are invitations from God to come to him and receive mercy, to receive grace, to receive forgiveness, to receive a fresh start. It's what we're celebrating this week. It's what we're celebrating Easter Sunday morning. Any need in your life, whatever the need is, whatever need you have today, you put it in your head, because of the cross, because of what God did, any need in your life is an invitation from God. That's what it is. It's an invitation. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Jesus' claims weren't about his ideas. They weren't about his teachings. They were about himself. Come to me because he's the only one who can take on our suffering. He's the only one who can redeem our past and our failures. Because of the cross, suffering has been transformed into this invitation from God. So here's how I'd like to end today. If you could bow your heads with me for just a moment. I'd like to just lead us in a time of reflection. Um, the band was gonna play something different. And I, I just said, man, would you guys be willing this morning to go a little bit extra and, and play the song, My Victory? This is the song they opened uh, with because it's such a powerful declaration of what we've been talking about here this morning. We're not victims. The cross has been our victory. And so right now, as you're gathered, maybe you're just sitting there thinking about your own life. This is the beginning of Holy Week. It's Palm Sunday. We enter into the narrative of the cross. What's happening in your life that, that maybe you haven't viewed it as an invitation from God, but because of the cross, that's exactly what it is. And maybe for some of you in this room, it's the first time in your life, maybe you'd look and just say, man, I've fought God for so long. I've been a victim for so long. How could this happen? How could that happen? Maybe today is the day you just say, I can't do this on my own. And the victim thing, it just doesn't work. Whether it's fair or not, doesn't even matter. It doesn't work. It doesn't help anybody. It doesn't transform and set free and heal. Maybe this is the moment you just say, God, I just confess you as Lord. I surrender my life to you. For others of you right now in this room, maybe just between you and God right now, it's just a matter of saying, I've been trying to deal with loneliness. I've been trying to deal with my own suffering, my own shame, my own regret. I've got this need, I've got that need. I've been trying to do it on my own. And maybe this is the day you say, God, I'm bringing that to you right now in this moment. Jesus, I give that to you. I surrender that to you. So Father, this morning we just come before you and we just recognize that you not only paid the price for our sins, for our brokenness, um, but through the cross, it, you're, in Colossians it says the cross is actually a reconciliation of all things under heaven and under earth, everything back to the Father. And so that includes us in this room this morning, and God, so we come to you. We come to you right now and we just say, God, we, we declare we are not victims. That's not what we are. Even though maybe some of us in this room, we've, we've been victimized, things have happened to us, things have been done, or we've participated in some way in victimizing others, but that's not what we are this morning, God. Because of the cross and because of what you've done, you've set us free and you've given us this hope. And so God, it's in that that we rest this morning. It's in that that we, that we declare and we love you and we thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. Now, would you stand with us? We're just gonna declare this song, My Victory.